But in building like a rocket ship, you can't really have it explode halfway through. That's the last thing that you can afford. And so it's more important to like really deeply understand what the problem is that users are facing and accordingly figure out what if I built will actually get massive adoption in like a few months from now. Hey, I'm Aparna. I'm the co-founder and CTO of Open. I got into crypto 2015 because I was really passionate about cryptography. Read the Bitcoin white paper and then just kind of fell down that rabbit hole. Um, started blockchain at Berkeley and uh, from there decided to drop out of school, take the Teal Fellowship. Um, worked on proof of stake research for a couple of years and then uh, started building products in DeFi. Um, the first product we built was a margin trading product on top of Compound. Um, and the biggest thing we realized from building that product is a lot of our users would keep asking us what happens if Compound gets hacked or what happens if your guys' code gets hacked? What happens if DAI loses its peg? And this really opened our eyes to the fact that risk management in DeFi does not exist. Which brings us to Open today. Open is a risk management platform uh, for DeFi. And Open uses options as a way to allow people to protect themselves against hacks, against financial risks, uh, and a large surface area of like unintended risks. What would you say, Aparna, is the most interesting aspect of your job? I would say the most interesting aspect is being able to solve really, really hard problems, not just from not just hard technical problems, but hard mechanism design, finance, and technical problems. So an example of it is we're currently designing Open V2. And some problems we are thinking about is like, how do you create perpetual options? Or how do you basically like take this financial instrument um, and somehow fit it into the blockchain, but also like allow it to not have uh, an expiry date any longer, um, all while coding it in Solidity with Solidity language-based constraints. Like you can't really loop through things. You have to, you have to get really, really clever about like software architecture in in a scenario like this um and so i would say it's just like the combination of being able to think about complex like financial technical and um economic problems on an everyday basis if you were to point to what is number one on your mind in terms of problems to solve what is that right now off the top of your head off the top of my head um i think better um so uniswap Impermanent loss really, really wrecks market makers or any liquidity providers for illiquid markets where assets tend to drift apart from each other. So basically, if you're a Uniswap liquidity provider, you're fine as long as the two assets like move up in price together or move down in price together. If one asset goes up in price and the other just kind of remains the same or starts to go like that, then the Uniswap liquidity provider is the one who is taking the battery, is taking the asset that's doing not so well 
and giving away the asset that's doing really well. And so uh, a big, big problem we're tackling at Open is these options necessarily end up becoming an asset class that like tend towards zero as expiry approaches, while ETH is not tending to zero. And so these assets tend to diverge. And so how do you create a mechanism, uh, uh, some kind of market making mechanism whereby it's profitable for someone to be an LP um, and, and basically the drift of assets does not affect them. So basically, how do you turn this permanent loss of Uniswap into an actual impermanent loss? Okay. Um, yeah. Cool. And so with Uniswap V2, where one side of the exchange is a stable coin, uh, affect your plans in any way? Does it simplify it or make it harder? It doesn't exactly help because even if it's a stable coin, it's not like, so the price of the option goes, will continue to decrease and will go to zero as expiry approaches. For as it should. As it should. And so like, it doesn't matter even if the stable coin is stable or like if it's ETH that's going up and down because at the end of the day, like the assets are still drifting apart, which means as a liquidity provider, you're still making a loss um, in that case. What really needs to exist is a different kind, different pricing function, something that maybe like prices, prices. Um, so Uniswap uses a constant product for its pricing, but maybe I guess like Curve is an example of a constant sum pro, uh, kind of uh, AMM. There needs to be something that does that plays with volatility and like maybe considers that constant or like some play on volatility for the option to be priced better. Um, so that's kind of the problems that we're thinking about most recently. Let's, let's talk about your launch process. So you guys launched a margin trading product, uh, mm -hmm. which is Open V0, if you want to keep the <laughs> monikers. And then you recently launched a V1 of the Open, which is the built on the Convexity protocol uh, yeah. in January or February of this year, so a couple of yeah. months uh, ago. What have you learned about the market, the product, the users since launch? Something yeah. that's like, oh my, uh, this is not something I expected. I would say probably the biggest learning has been that that people are afraid of like other DeFi risks, like compound risks or like other protocol risks, but not enough to, it's not exciting enough for someone to sell insurance for something like that, um, especially given current compound rates. And, and someone who's buying such an insurance is not really willing to take market price or whatever they'll get. It's not like a hair on fire burning problem. But I think what we've learned is that ETH price volatility or Bitcoin price volatility, like protection against an asset that's extremely volatile is something people are so, so desperately afraid of and are willing to pay whatever price it takes to get that protection, um, which has been very interesting. Um, just, just seeing how like the compound insurance markets versus the ETH insurance markets have done since launch. There, 
lots of use cases of options, right? Yeah. So uh, let's pick one specific use case with the MakerDAO liquidations. So uh, what usually ends up happening is if the price of ETH were to dramatically drop, uh, your wallets would get under collateralized, and as a result, they could get liquidated, and yeah. you would uh, uh, hopefully not lose the collateral, uh, but sometimes that does happen because of bugs, whatever. So let's take a scenario. Uh, let's, let's have you walk through a user buying an option and three scenarios where the price of ETH were to increase, the price of ETH were to decrease, and the price of ETH were to slide sideways, were stable. Uh, mm -hmm. How would a user think about protecting their wallet? Let's take simple uh, numbers. So $100 for ETH, so your collateralization ratio, 150%, or let's take $150, so $100 worth of DAI can be minted from that ETH. And so uh, let's go from there. How would a person use Open's Options product to protect their wallets? Okay, cool. Um, let's start with that. There's actually some very, very interesting stuff around the Black Thursday stuff too. So okay. if we have time, we can get there. Yep. Um, so let's say that you're a buyer and ETH is today at 206. Um, last I checked, it was something like that. Um, and let's say you're afraid of ETH falling, falling below 200. Or let's just say like you just bought a bulk of ETH right now at this very moment. And if ETH just goes down like 50% in the next like five minutes, that's not something you necessarily want to happen. Um, and so one way you can hedge that risk is buying a protective put option on your ETH. So what you do as a buyer is buy this put option, which gives you the right, but not the obligation to sell your ETH at 200 US for 200 USDC anytime before say May 16th. Let's just take an example. Um, now, if ETH price was to go down to like 199 or 198, you can immediately exercise this option, which means sell your ETH and get 200 USDC in return. Um, so if ETH remains at like 207 or goes up, you don't exercise this option. You just paid some premium upfront for it. Um, and yeah, you, you lost your premium upfront, but you had the potential for protection for that entire time period. So that's how uh, the base case of, of an option works. So let me, let me uh, ask two follow-up questions based on that yeah. use case so that we can uh, understand what's to come forward. So I'm going to go buy an option and I'm, is the option on open uh, a specific contract with a set of parameters as in the strike price and the expiry date. And there are multiple of these contracts that uh, either you or the market creates They're essentially products, they're packaged products. Yeah. And so uh, you have to buy, uh, you have to find a trade on the other side who's willing to, to buy uh, that premium, essentially buy the option from you. Uh, where is that happening? Yeah, so this is a great question. And so open is essentially an insurance or like an options marketplace where there's a pool of sellers and a pool of buyers. So 
for let's say a certain set of parameters like let's say the 200 strike option expiring on may 16th um protection on eth there's there's a pool of sellers who are creating this option you don't know who created it very similar to if you're a die holder you don't know who created the die you just have a die and that's cool so in this case you just have an option which is an o token and that's cool um and it's an erc20 that's fungible with all other o tokens as part of the same series um so this is actually what where things start to get more interesting which is because they're fungible you can do more than just buy them you can buy and sell them which means if you wanted to protect yourself as eth starts to fall in price you can either exercise this option or you can sell this option and this is kind of where it things start to get even more exciting because sometimes selling your option is even more profitable than just exercising your option so we actually saw this happen when eth kind of went a little below 200 uh a couple of days ago where some users were trying to exercise their option um so let's let's take an example let's say you paid $5 to buy this option now let's say eth is at 199 if you were to exercise this option uh you basically have the right to sell your eth for 200 which is $1 about the market price so your net profit is uh you paid 5 for the premium you made 1 from uh exercising your option so minus 5 plus 1 uh minus 4 instead if you sold this option on the market you could instantly make $10 because the premium has now gone up um and so you paid negative 5 or you paid 5 for this option but you're selling it at 10 you've already made minus 5 plus 10 $5 and so having the ability to sell it on a secondary market makes it such a very makes it a very powerful hedge okay so going back to that one statement you said where these o tokens are fungible does that mean that the different series are fungible or is it just the tokens within a single series are fungible yeah it's all the tokens within a single series which are fungible okay so yeah. what that means is that if the seller were to create a specific it's like an nft in a in a yeah. sense right it's like an nft uh where the parameters are the expiry date and the strike price and all that stuff and uh what that means is that there are infinite number of possibilities of creating these uh series right there are infinite series in theory because mm -hmm. all of these uh dates and uh prices they're all uh continuous numbers right so mm -hmm. uh how how is that resolved like is is there a rule or you everyone just throws it out and figures out yeah. what has So basically what ends up happening is we create I mean anyone can create the, their own series but so far we've been creating series so there's maybe like five or six series trading at any point of time and a seller is selling within a series and the buyer is buying within that same series it's kind of like if someone took maker and like had five forks of maker trading at the same time each of those dies are like like single collateral die is fungible within single collateral die and multi collateral die is fungible within that 
not fungible between the two things, but there, since they only exist like two or three of these, it's, it's still okay. And anyone who's creating dye is creating one of these dye. They're not creating both. Or they may be creating both, but like it's two separate things. Okay, so that's how you're able to make the actual O tokens fungible, even though exactly. the underlying series are not, not really. Okay, yeah. so interesting. Okay, okay. And then uh, the second question I have is, how do you price the premium for these options? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so currently they're market priced. And when we bootstrap the market, we set an initial price for them based on uh, what a similar option contract would get you in like Deribit, on Deribit or other options exchanges. Um, but after that, markets will just buy and sell and price it. Um, <clears throat> this is another reason why like Uniswap as a pricing function for options doesn't make sense. Um, and in traditional finance, they're priced using something called like black shoals, um, which is a better way of pricing an option. And you need to kind of take into account volatility, expiration date, price of the underlying asset, all these different factors. You can't just take into account like how much, how much people bought and how much people sold. Uh, okay, so we've taken this one example of uh, protecting yourself from the ETH price crashing. What yeah. other use cases uh, do you see uh, applicable to the open option system? Yeah, so another really, really cool use case is like protection against ETH price going up. Now you might ask, like, why would someone want to protect themselves against ETH price, ETH price going up? Like, we're all bulls here, right? Yeah. Well, what if, what if, I don't get my salary until next month and I just, I can't buy any more ETH like for a month. What if ETH goes up to like 400 and I just missed out on like ETH price going up? Um, so like I can basically buy a call option which gives me the right to buy ETH for cheap or like at a, at a lower price um for the next one month and that's that's another cool use case for something like open um the other really cool thing that starts to happen once you have protection against like upward volatile upward price movement and downward price movement is you can you can start to basically if you're a uniswap liquidity provider right now uh you're putting down eth as an asset uh, and then you're putting down another token, which means ETH is going up and down relative to this other token. Uh, but as an LP, you're making like impermanent loss from that drift between ETH and this other token. So as an LP to protect yourself, you could start to buy a put option and a call option on ETH and reduce your impermanent loss. So that's another like example of a use case for, for options in general. Um, and then not to mention our all favorite volatile die, which is supposed to be pegged to a dollar, but goes up from like a dollar 17 to down to, a, to like 95 cents, um, all within a few days. Um, if you could start to have options on die, a put option on die and a call option on die and package it with die then you basically have an actually stable die 
going back to the different ways of constructing uh, these products, you can either have a direct P2P model where I open up a, an option with a set of parameters and I find someone on the other side exactly those uh, parameters. And in the, uh, in, the, in the debt market, fixed term loans have not had a lot of success. So the, that's why Dharma pivoted, uh, in, in, if you can consider that. So they, uh, the most popular and the most successful uh, model right now is the pooled model. Where does, where would you categorize open? Is it because the, the options themselves are fixed, but the liquidity comes from a pool because these O tokens are fungible. So mm -hmm. where in that landscape would you categorize open? Open is pool to pool, not peer to peer. It's more like peer, uh, I guess, peer to contract, What whatever the terminology this, uh, that is used is, I guess, because these ERC-20s are fungible with each other, um, where would I put it on a spectrum? I would say like, like it's a pool of pools. Okay. So uh, there are a lot of options products coming on the market. How would you say open is different from any hypothetical? You know, there are other products that are still very early. I mean, open itself is only a few few months old. So, uh, what are the other models of options that are interesting to look at and something that you guys have explored and either uh, looking to adopt in the future or will or have discarded? Yeah, um, I guess so. A couple of different ideas we've been playing around with. One was like, okay, what if we built like a delayed sell AMM where basically a seller, like someone who created this O token puts it into this AMM. They won't get their money up front, but it's kind of like uh, as every buy trickles in, like the premium is spread across every single seller. Um, I, that's, that's not a great model because then as a seller, I'm not like locking in a fixed rate. I'm not able to get in and out of like the best rates when I want. I'm not able to get out of the position when I want. And so that's an option we thought about like a couple months ago when we were thinking about like early, like different I'm, AMM ideas. You missed no pun intended. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but so that's, that's one idea we've been throwing around. Other ideas we've been throwing around is like what like around like, like spreads around um, most people aren't afraid of ETH falling from 200 to zero. Like most people are probably afraid of ETH falling from like 200 to 100, 200 to 150. If you if you're able to allow someone to just protect that much, not like all the way down to zero, then you're able to make the option cheaper, um, which means like you're able to free up a lot more capital and create a lot more capital efficiency in the whole system. Um, and so that's another like set of ideas we've been throwing around. Um, other things we've been thinking about is uh, how do you make these options perpetual for sellers and for buyers? Um, so those are just kind of the different directions we're brainstorming in. Um, I guess what, makes open as it stands right now great is 
the fungibility of these tokens that you can sell and that there's a secondary market to sell it. It's very similar to traditional options and like anyone who's familiar trading traditional options can very easily like pick up that mindset and like apply it here. Um, we've also been like exploring like new pricing models and like new AMM models and like new ways to pool all this um, to create better capital efficiency and like pool all this uh, capital that's just sitting around um, and see how else we can use it. Uh, okay, I have a question about the settlement or the exercising of these options. Uh, would I, as a user, have to, I mean, obviously I have the choice whether I want to exercise it or not, whether yeah. it's profitable or not. Is this something that I manually have to go into the open system and then exercise, or can I set an option or set like a toggle to automatically exercise if it's profitable, for example? No, currently you have to manually exercise it, but that's also something we're working on as part of our V2. So if you forget that you had a option exercise, uh, expiring, then uh, is there a, grace period after to exercise or no it's okay. it's kind of just done yeah so how how would this happen so if let's say it's expiring 12 o'clock midnight and yeah. then i need to uh log into the system let's say eleven fifty-five, and can i exercise it anytime up to the expiry and then expiry and then it's just binary i can't yeah, yeah okay so basically from the point that you bought the option you can exercise it at any time until x expiry Okay. But like you would never exercise it unless it was profitable to exercise it. Of course. Yeah. But the expiry is a hard stop. Yeah. The expiry is a hard stop. So from a UX perspective, what you guys can be thinking about is sending an email a day before, you know, yeah. a couple hours before, a minute before, or yeah. even an SMS. Uh, it's like a page of duty for, you know, the open exactly. system. Okay. Exactly. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, cool. Those are great suggestions. Oh, thanks. Uh, so it's, it's some of the stuff that we do at Covalent for uh, MakerDAO collaterals, right? So we have a calculation engine that calculates your unrealized gains or losses, and then we can send you notifications. Right now, that's webhooks. Uh, but if you look at any of our wallet customers, they uh, make use of this pretty heavily. Nice. Uh, just something to you know level up the user experience. That's uh, cool. Uh, you you guys have launched. How do you measure success that you're successful in with the open system? It's yeah. far more than total value locked, right? Because that's not that meaningful. How do you, yeah. how do you bring success? So I guess like there are two answers to this. One is like the numerical answer, but let me start with a more interesting answer, which is like, what do we see as success for ourselves? Which is we, we're all in DeFi in the first place because we believe that we can build a more inclusive, fair, and open financial system than what already exists today. And a big part of building that we see is DeFi is here. And a lot of money in DeFi is only like a risk on money today. But that doesn't mean everyone who wants to use DeFi has that appetite of risk on. And so what we see as success is if we're able to make DeFi actually secure, if we're able to make DeFi so secure that like people who are risk off are feeling comfortable using this as their primary bank account or like 
I guess here in America, the financial system is great. Like that's not true for everyone around the world. Um, there are so many, like, yeah, maybe FDIC offers me like 250K on, on like my bank deposits, but that's not true for most other countries. And a lot of, a lot of people really need a better financial system. And what we would measure success is, has DeFi gotten to a state where anyone in the world is able to use this as an alternative to a bank in their country? Um, is it something they feel safe putting their life deposits in? Like someone like my grandma feels safe using this as her primary bank account. That's, that's a step in the right direction. It's a step closer to success. Um, will that step come today? No, it's, it's long ways away, but that's kind of the long, long-term goal for us. I think in the short term, yes, there are all these metrics which we do measure to help us see if we're going in the right direction. And for open, um, a more valuable metric is total volume as opposed to, um, as opposed to like total value locked, um, just because these are like, as things expire, as contracts expire, like money goes in and out of the system. Um, but really what matters is like, is someone who's, who has a lot of money, like able to sell a lot today, or is someone who, who has a lot of ETH able to buy a large amount of protection in uh, like today and comfortably sell that. And so for that volume really like makes a big difference. Okay. Very inspiring. I want to talk about the 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 product itself. So yeah. so far, your focus has been on the smart contract layer, the trustless nature of the smart contracts and the audits and everything that go, has to go with that. And then there, I'm guessing in the next couple of weeks, a big focus is going to be on the front end. So what data does your front end expose today, and what data are you looking to expose over the coming weeks? I guess actually. Over the long term, our focus is on the protocol more than on the front end. Um, in fact, we're at a stage where we're redesigning the protocol. So we're actually starting to build out new smart contracts. Um, for us, the way we see the front end is it's there and it's a way to guide user experiences just the way like Compound's front end is a way to guide um, other projects into thinking of what front ends can be built but it's not the front end to the protocol. We don't see it as that at all. And it's more important for us to support other developers building on our protocol and more important for us to build a very, very secure solidity like base because that's something that's, that's like the fundamental part of building risk management of the future. And so all our efforts are mostly focused on that. Yeah. I, I mostly agree with that aspect because you cannot cater to all kinds of use cases. Maybe you are catering to a professional <laughs> trader who wants uh, to be overwhelmed with data. They don't want to see any white space anywhere or a more novice user who just wants a single buy button and doesn't really care about yeah. uh, different calculations. And so I think that's, that's the right choice. And I think the space is moving towards that where you have these aggregators who are uh, providing all of these uh, different scenarios for different use exactly. cases. Exactly. But in building like a rocket ship, you can't really 
have it explode halfway through. Yep. That's the last thing that you can afford. And so it's more important to like really deeply understand what the problem is that users are facing and accordingly figure out what if I built will actually get massive adoption in like a few months from now. And it's okay that it takes that long development process um, because it's more important for like that thing to not explode than it is for me to ship that today. And another way we think about, I guess, like our iteration cycle is um, you can afford to move fast and build, break things at a front end level, but you can't exactly do that at the smart contract level. Um, but you can, you don't necessarily have to take like five years to build out a new protocol. You can keep the kind of trust with users and keep up the momentum by like doing a few month long cycles. Um, it could be like five to six months, five to eight months. Those are still reasonable and just being open and communicative with your users about it and communicating to them that at the end of the day, the most important thing for them and for you is the safety of their money because um, at the end of the day, it's like, it's it's so important for someone someone who comes into DeFi and loses money is never going to use DeFi ever again. Like imagine putting your life savings into a platform that you thought was safe and you lose so much money in an unexpected way, you get burned. That's the worst user experience. And so it's okay for people to wait the additional time just for this additional security. So I guess that's how we think about it. Okay, cool. So in your view, then uh, Maker should have compensated those guys on March 13 who lost money. Well, no, because I think, so what happened on March 13th was a very interesting scenario where I think it's interesting because I've, I've literally thought of that scenario so many times where it actually doesn't end with, uh, with Paradigm tweeting, hey, like, we're gonna, we're gonna step into this auction. It ends way worse where Maker goes down, hits emergency shutdown, causes a bank run on compound because now everyone's panicking and not able to die no longer, doesn't, works as a collateral. So compounds shut down. Um, compound shuts down basically means every other like money market on DeFi has shut down, which means like it's basically the crash of DeFi as we know. Um, and I don't think it was an event that we didn't foresee. It's something we, we all knew at the back of our heads. I think as human beings, we tend to downplay the existence of black swan events and kind of like to think of them as, oh, that's, it's not really going to happen. And then they happen. And then we're like, well, like, how did this happen? But math and probability is not going to tell you everything. Maybe there's like a 0.01% chance that DeFi ends that way. Doesn't mean we should not be prepared. Like, if there's that chance, like, what is the impact that such an event could have is something we need to mentally prepare for. And I think, well, 
I don't, I don't know if makers should or should not pay these people, like what the legal angle from all of that looks like is maker is maker like as an organization liable are NKR holders liable. All of these are open questions, no clear black and white there. Rather, I think I'd like to pose it as there are going to be risks in DeFi and there will continue to be black swan events. It's our responsibility as DeFi builders to also put into place measures so that like these situations don't just continue to happen and people don't just continue to lose money in unexpected ways. Um, it's kind of like putting into place the checks and measures necessary. If that okay. makes sense. Makes sense. Okay. So I'm going through my list of questions and, uh, Yeah, I think that's pretty much. So one final question is, you have to share something that's controversial about the DeFi space. Controversial about the DeFi space? Um, huh. Well, I mean, okay. This is actually, I, I don't know if this is controversial about DeFi or like DeFi security in general. Um, I think there's been a lot of talk about like, uh, should auditors be required to stake like um, money into projects that they like audit, etc. Um, I'll tell you the take and then you tell me is it controversial or not. Okay. Um, my take is no auditors should not like have to stake money behind projects because it's a, it's a project that makes the architectural decisions it's the project that makes the system decisions in the first place. Like it's not the auditor's job to design your system, to write your white paper. If it was their job, then they are your developers, then they are your team. And so sec security really is like the DNA of a team security and like system design is something that the team is a hundred percent responsible for. The auditor is responsible for ensuring that your system works as you have specified it's not the auditor's job to tell you that your systems your system is like not architected correctly that's something for the system designers to think about in the first place and so i think auditors can stake if they want to but an auditor staking or not does not inherently make a system more safe because it's not the auditor who made those system decisions in the first place so that's my take. I don't know if that's controversial or not. Well, I, I don't really work on that layer. So I, uh, I don't know enough to uh, have an opinion, but in the, in the real world, financial auditors do stake. And that is why Anderson went under with the Volcom or Enron uh, fudging, where they cook the books. So in the real world, auditors are the equivalent uh, architects sign off. So they have professional liability. Engineers, like the real engineers, not software engineers, they have professional liability. So uh, I think what, what uh, audits have become in this space is it's become a proxy for whether you can trust this or not. And that's why I like what DeFi score is doing this consensus project where they're looking at a holistic picture uh, of whether uh, from, uh, from birth, if the practices are, are actually make sense, which is equal to the SOC 2 style 
uh, compliance audits that you have on your back-end office uh, uh, controls, essentially that's the word. Hey guys, I'm Aparna. I'm from Open. I'm excited to be on the Hidden Gems podcast from Covalent. 